be sharing God's Word with you again. And good to see you all here today. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking at, well, le- we're leading into Christmas. So we have a, a, a bit of a Christmas message today. And we're looking at John, the, the passage we read during communion time, John chapter 1. And we'll read from verses 1 to 11 again. I'd like to remind us of uh, who it is that we're remembering during this time of the year. So John chapter 1. We already have one dissenter at the back over there who's not happy about the message. All right. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to be a witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this, let's commit this time to him. Father, we thank you once again for the word which you have faithfully recorded for us and faithfully preserved for us, that even after all this time, after these thousands and thousands of years, Father, we can trust every word and every syllable in it. And we thank you that you have done that for us because we can have hope through these scriptures. So I pray today that as I speak, that you would speak through me that you would deliver this message as you see fit, that you would use me for your purposes, that you would encourage us to continue to fight the good fight, that we would continue to keep our minds and our hearts focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would remember always that we live in a very dark world with very many, many people who are going to hell, and we have been called to be your witnesses. So, Father, I pray today that you would convict us, convict us, Father, and, and help us to strive further to redeem the time that we live in and the time that we have because these days that we live in are very, very evil. So, Father, help us to be focused, to be committed and to be living for Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been excited um, about the arrival of something new? Ever been excited? Ever, ever got you know, worked up about something? You know, people I've noticed, if you look around the world, are always getting excited about one thing or another. Uh, it's a very common thing. Um, they, and during this time of the year, for some people, it's actually a very exciting time. And they get worked up about it, they get excited about it. And you, there, there are people flying here and flying there and travelling here and travelling over there and people seeing relatives and friends that they maybe haven't seen for a long time. So for a lot of people, this time of the year is actually a very exciting time because they get a chance to catch up with families and friends that they haven't seen. This time can be a very exciting time for some people about seeing family and for some people seeing family is not so exciting. While the adults are stressing about Christmas and organising all the festivities and how to get here and there and buying gifts for the family, because it's always fun, uh, cooking food and the like, and organising themselves, the children around the world are uh, eagerly awaiting, what? Their Christmas presents. So a lot of them are uh, building up anticipation about these gifts that are going to be left under a tree. At the same time, all the shop owners around the world are all rubbing their hands and excited about the amount of money that people are going to be spending through their doors because this is probably the most um, uh, prosperous time for them. That's what gets them excited. For some people, they get excited about the Boxing Day sales. And all those gifts that you got from your relatives, you're ready to bring them all back and exchange it for something else. 
for some people it's the arrival of a child. I mean, for some people excitement comes. Maybe if you've had your if you've had any children yourself. I mean that 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 time, especially the first one, because you don't know what to expect, can be a very very exciting time. And that time leading up to the birth, you know, it can seem long, long, long. But you know, those nine months that you go through, it's that last few days. That's all of a sudden, you know, when you get to those last few days and, and you know, your, your um, things are about to happen, all of a sudden your excitement builds, but the fear builds as well, especially the, uh, for the guys who don't know their way to their hospital. Oh. And the pressure's on for the guys because they have to, you know, they have to do all the driving. So for some people... The birth of a child can be a very, very exciting, exciting time that builds anticipation. You know, when I was young, um, when I say young, probably in uh, high school, in my early teens, I remember the first time we bought a computer for our family. And I, I'm not sure, do you know, any of you know what a VIC-20 is? <laughs> uh, hands up, do you know what a VIC-20 is? Oh, we have one at the back over there. Wow, that's, I feel really old now. Sorry. I remember us buying our first computer, and, I, and, and there were a few other computers floating around in those days, and it had 16K of memory, this computer, right? 16K. <laughs> it was so exciting. It had a keyboard, you plug it into your TV, and you could type and watch stuff coming out on a TV. Now, that was the most amazing thing ever, and we had one of those things, and, you know, if you had other, uh, you know, uh, school classmates and that, um, they're all, if you had, they had one as well, you'd be comparing notes and I can do this with it and I can do that with it and then we upgraded to a Commodore 64 and that was like the... Mate. Times have changed. Some people uh, get excited in this world about the, uh, the arrival of a new song by their favourite band. Some people get excited about a new administration or government coming into power because they're not happy with the one that, that was uh, there and maybe they're, they're more happy or more hopeful about a new one starting and giving them a, you know, a better opportunity in life. You know, there are some people that have been caught in war for a long time and they're looking forward to some peace. There are some people who get excited maybe about having a meal. Maybe because they haven't had a good meal for a long time. Maybe that one meal they have to fill their, their stomach might be a really exciting thing. So the world, whichever way you look at it, there's hope. Where there's hope um, about something that's coming or the advent of something, we, uh, there is excitement. Now this term advent is a term that's commonly used around this time of the year. Who, who knows, ever heard the word advent? Okay, so there are a number of mainline Christian churches, denominations that that signify these few weeks leading up to Christmas with a term called Advent, okay? Um, and it generally covers about four weeks. And, they, and the purpose of this Advent is to prepare themselves for the arrival of Christmas and to remind themselves about the meaning of Christmas and that the day that Jesus was born. Some denominations do certain things. Some people have fasting to prepare themselves. Some people do special things along the way to remind themselves about these things. Not sure what exactly for, to be honest with you, because, I mean, Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. He's not being born again every year. But they do it as part of their tradition. But for the Christian, um, the birth of Jesus happened 2,000 years ago. But um, if you're a Christian today, Jesus, I want to remind you, was living in your heart. He, doesn't, he isn't born again every year. We know that. Um, and so the term Advent for a Christian, for a born-again Christian, uh, generally means something a bit different to some of these other churches. And that's what I'd like to examine today. The term Advent, what does it actually mean? And what does it mean for us as Christians? <coughs> you know, we ever heard of the term the Advent of television? Well, the advent of space travel. So if you, we speak about the advent of television, we're, we're speaking about and looking back in history and saying, you know, when television first arrived on the scene, it changed a lot of things in the world. People, you had a new medium for entertainment, but you had also a new medium for information coming 
into your family. And for those of you who go back a little bit further, you may remember the first television that you bought and how different it was and how different the world became because of the advent of television. You might argue that there are pluses and minuses for television, and yes, there are plenty of minuses. The same thing with the internet. The advent of the internet changed the world. In some, for some ways, many, very bad. For some ways, good. Same thing about space travel. Now, the advent of space travel. When man first shot, shot another man into, this, into space, um, it changed the way we look at the world and the solar system and universe we live in. So those advents were significant enough to change the world. Every time a, a company releases a new product, let's say you're a, and it's an established company, um, and they want to announce the advent of a new product that they've got coming onto the market, and Apple is very good at this, for instance, okay? Every time they've got a new iPhone that, that's, that, that will be coming out, they make a song and dance about you know, what it might have and people are making, writing articles and this. And the Samsung will do the same. And every car company does the same for the next model. You know, the next model might have... Who's got a car with automatic parking? Has anyone... Would anyone dare to actually put up their hand and say they've got a car with automatic parking? <laughs> but there are cars that automatically park and there's going to be cars soon that automatically drive. Okay, so if you have a more advanced car now, there are cars that tell you how far away you are from the car in front of you and the car behind, and it will automatically break if you've taken your eyes off the road. Uh, and soon, I mean, that's building up to cars driving by themselves. Not sure how game we're going to be to sit in the car without putting our hands in the steering wheel, but I'm sure that we're going to find in the next 10 or 15 years cars driving around and you look, you might be driving, and you look, you look next to you, and the guy's sitting in the back seat, maybe. <laughs> That's going to be a scary thing, just to, just to think about there. But, but companies and governments and those sorts of things actually announce the advent of a new, um, a new product or a new policy or whatever, and they do it very strategically. They want people to know and get excited about something that's coming up. And marketing companies do that very, very well these days, so much so that they keep people trapped in a continual loop with that. But what if the greatest advent in history was foretold so that we could get excited about it? What if the greatest advent in history, the greatest arrival of something or someone had been heralded for a long time and had been given to a group of people, had been entrusted to a group of people who then were given the responsibility to get everyone else excited about that arrival. About the most amazing advent the world has ever known. This is the story of the Bible and the Jewish people who were given the unbelievable duty of letting the world know that there was someone coming with a special message about the advent of the greatest phenomenon the world will ever, ever know. And the messages were given to their prophets. Messages directly by the one who was sending this particular person so that they could be recorded for all time and people could read about it and people could know about it and get excited about it. It would be through these people that the character of God would be demonstrated and recorded in this book about how he dealt with the world and what his hopes were for the world and what plan he had for the world and what he was about to do for the world. It was through these people that this promise would be delivered. And through these people, his message, his accomplishments, his arrival would be heralded throughout the world. It would be through these people that this notable person would be born into the world. And thus we have the writings of the Old and the New Testament. The Jewish people were entrusted with an amazingly difficult but unbelievably privileged thing to do. They were the people who were going to record 
the coming or the advent of God's special deliverer into the world. I'd like to show you some of those um, prophecies and some of those predictions or some of those leaks. You know how the government leaks certain things? These were, this was God leaking into the world and saying, this is what's coming up. Let me tell you about it. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at some of those special announcements that was meant to get the world excited about this advent. Genesis chapter 3, we'll begin there, verse 15. This is the first indication that God was going to deliver something to us that would change the world forever. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, in a, uh, it seems convoluted, that particular um, message. But it's very simple. It simply was telling us that this person would be born of a woman only and that he would be in a struggle with an enemy who was represented by the serpent and the serpent would bite his heel but he would crush his head which guaranteed victory in the end. We know that who that was. We know that was Jesus who was, who was put on a cross because the devil managed to, to convince the people in his time that he was too dangerous to leave alive. And when they put him on a cross and they killed him and they made sure that he was dead by thrusting a spear in his side, they said, it's done. He said it was done, but they thought it was done on their side. They thought they'd won the victory. The devil thought that he'd actually managed to get rid of the Son of God and to stop God's plan to save the world. Little did he know, because if he knew, he would not have killed the King of Glory. Turn to Isaiah. Sorry, turn to Micah, chapter 5. So we have the first instance of God promising the advent of someone who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Micah, chapter 2, toward the end of the Old Testament. Micah, chapter 5. Did I say chapter 2? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now here God leaks something else. He's, he's telling us where this person would be born specifically. It says there, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, thou, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee... Shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. How do you like that as a prophecy? So not only does this particular thing, this particular one verse, tell us where this king would be born, but that he would be born the king of the Jews, and he would be the ruler of Israel, and he would, and he was, existent, before, from everlasting, that he was pre-existent and eternal, this being. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. So we know that he'd, that he'd be born of a woman. We know that he's, uh, he'd be in a, a struggle with the devil or a battle with the devil, which he would win. We know he'd be born in Bethlehem. We know he was everlasting as a being. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7 tells us something else. It says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. From henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
Not only would he be the king of the Jews, but he would, his kingdom would last for how long? Forever. And his kingdom would be perfectly just and he would establish that kingdom with perfect order and he would establish that kingdom and maintain it with a perfect rule. Go back a couple of chapters. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. If Genesis chapter 3, 15 wasn't enough to convince people that he'd be born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 then tells us, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and his name and shall call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. God is with us. So God repeats the thing. So Genesis tells us he'd be born of a seed of a woman. Isaiah then enforce, reinforces that and says that, he, that a virgin would conceive and literally his name would mean God is with us. Turn forward again to Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. He would be, the Bible clearly teaches, the incarnation of God himself. Unlike anything that has ever happened before. So this being would come to this world, be born of a virgin. He would sit on the throne of King David, establish a, a kingdom forever. He was already existent forever. But if there was any doubt about who he was, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born. And unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Can this person be anyone other than God? Can this person be an angel, or a man, or some other being? No. There is absolutely no other way this person can be anything other than God. The scriptures make it very, very clear. So the scriptures were telling us that God himself was coming to this world. God himself would be born of a virgin. God himself would sit on the throne of King David and he would establish a kingdom that would live on and rule justly forever. And there's one more thing I'd just like to add. And there, there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens. I can give you 40 of them today. I'm only going to give you about five. Jerob, turn back to Jeremiah chapter 31 because I'm only, I really only want to focus on the birth of the Lord Jesus. I could give you dozens of scriptures about how he would die, what would happen to him, how he would live and what he would accomplish with his life. But Jeremiah, just to, just to give us one more, Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15 just after Isaiah One more interesting topic about when he would be born. It says in Jeremiah 31 verse 15, it says, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Now what does that mean? Well, the New Testament goes on and tells us when Jesus was born... And Herod found out about this thing. He became so threatened that another king was being born that he chose to kill every child two years and under in Bethlehem and all the, all the towns that were close to it along the coast. And this was telling us beforehand, hundreds of years before that happened, about what would happen during this particular time. Now, these are just a few little prophecies about Jesus. And we see, amazingly in the Bible, dozens and dozens and dozens of these types of specific prophecies that were all fulfilled in one person. The advent who of who would change the world forever. And God was telling the world, this is coming. This is on its way. The dawn of something new is coming to this world. We see 
these prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. But we see this amazingly in the story. We see these specific prophecies fulfilled in a group of men or in a small contingent of men that came at the time when Jesus was born to do something. They knew something and they weren't even Jews. They were outside of Jerusalem and they came to find out where this king was. Turn back to Matthew chapter 2 with me. And we're going to look at specifically now the excitement that a certain number of people had who knew the story well enough and knew the timing well enough to actually get excited about this advent. There are people today, when the new iPhone comes out, that they will sleep overnight in front of a store to get that phone because they're so excited about it. These guys left their hometown, which probably was in Persia somewhere, and took the trek across to Jerusalem because they knew and were excited enough to actually come and see the, announce, the, the, the coming of this king. And they brought with them gifts as well. They were excited. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. Do you see already some of the prophecies? These guys knew this. Bethlehem, they knew that his birthplace would probably be in Bethlehem. These guys knew they came to Jerusalem. They saw a star. God had somehow, they'd seen this star and they said, something's going on. We know this is the time. So they came. They came to Jerusalem. They came to find this particular king. And they knew that he'd be born king of the Jews. And why did they come? Look what it says there. They came to worship him. Who do you worship? These people knew the identity of the one that was coming. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. Was he excited? He was troubled. Now, why would he be troubled? And all Jerusalem with him. And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Did they know the prophecy, these priests, these rulers? Yes. Herod may not, may not have been too wise about what was going on, but he had people around him who knew the prophecies where he would be born. You know, if... If you were the mayor of Bethlehem, if I was the mayor of Bethlehem, I'd have a massive sign at the front of my town that said, this is where God is going to be born. And I'd have that as the most... <laughs> I'd have it as a tourist attraction. Wouldn't you? I'd, have peop I, I'd, I'd be telling that to everyone. But funnily enough, it wasn't. Yet it was recorded in their, in their Bibles, in their scriptures, that this is the place where this Messiah would be born. <coughs> Did they know? Yes, of course they knew. All the religious leaders knew. And the funny thing was, were they excited about it? No. It says they were troubled about it. They, they were concerned about it. Why would you be concerned about the prophecy that, that God was going to send a Messiah and now it was a time that was happening. Why? Maybe their lone lives weren't too flash. Maybe they didn't want to give up what they had. Maybe they saw this thing as a threat to their little empire that they'd built up for themselves. Did they know? Of course they did. And so did Herod the king. Now let's see what his response is going to be to that. Matthew chapter 2 verse 7 says, then Herod, when he had privily, that means quietly, privately, called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. 
And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. This guy's a liar. He had no intention of worshipping Jesus. He had every intention of finding out where he was so he could kill him. And he wanted to use them for that purpose. Verse 9 says, And when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star, which they, saw in, which they saw in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. These guys are excited. They've almost reached the place where, where this saviour and this king was about to be born, or was, sorry, was already born. And there, there weren't only three, okay? So there aren't three wise men. The only, re, the only place we get three wise men from is that there were three types of gifts that they delivered. There could have been more than three wise men. There could have been ten wise men, okay? What we do know is they came from the east, most likely from Persia. Um, but I don't believe there were three. Also, it probably wasn't at the exact night that Jesus was born. There's a good indication that, that they were there in Bethlehem for a while. And it wasn't until these, these, these fellows arrived later, because often the term used is that he was a young child, not a babe lying in a manger. Okay, So um, let's have a look at verse 11. It says, And when they were come into the house, where was Jesus born? In a stable. But yet they were living in a house now. So it's not the same night, okay? So that's not the same thing. When they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. They had hit the jackpot, as the world puts it. They saw the king, and they saw him and his mother, and uh, when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You do not give those sorts of gifts to a commoner. You don't give those sorts of gifts to, to anyone. They were gifts given because they recognised that he was a king. You see, in those days, if you were a king, if you were coming from a foreign land and to present yourself before a king, you wanted to build good relationships with the king. So what they would do would bring gifts from their, their country of origin. This is what these men were doing. They wanted to bring gifts to say, we are here and we recognise your authority and your kingship. And we want to show you that we accept who you are. And the Bible says they not only accepted who he was as the king of the Jews, but they fell down and they worshipped him. Where did these guys know about him? Well, I would say that they, found they had the scriptures. I say they had these things recorded and they were wise enough and open enough and honest enough to take them for what they said. They recognised him as the king of the Jews, that he would be born of a virgin. They recognised the prophecy probably from Micah that declared that his goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. If they read that verse they would have quickly realised this, this fellow is not a normal human being. There is something about him that we need to worship, we need to honour. They recognised probably that he was an eternal being, probably God himself. They recognised he was more than man. If they read that verse that we just read in Isaiah that called him a wonderful counsellor, a mighty God, the mighty God, the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace, it's would you... Understand then why they would fall down and worship him. Did the Jewish leaders not recognise who he really was? Did they not have the same scriptures? Did the people that were entrusted with these writings, with this letter from God saying, I'm sending someone, I'm going to give you all the details about it as well. Did they not know who he was? Yes. Yet we find this amazing response from Herod to Jesus' birth. Look at verse 12. And being warned of God in a dream, these are the wise men, that they should not return to Herod. They departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child 
and his mother and flee into Egypt and be thou there until I bring thee word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. That's the response that he got. And seek to destroy him he did. He slaughtered the children that were two years and under. You understand why he destroyed the children that were about two years and under? Because he wasn't born that night. Do you understand? So he probably would have been about one year old. So he decided to make sure that he he covered everything. And the Bible says that um, he did a good job of it as well. How sad that the ones, the only ones that were ready to receive the king of glory, the one who'd been told from the Garden of Eden and promised from there, were a few men from a faraway land who weren't even his own people. Not Israel's king, not Israel's priest, not the country of Israel, not the city of Jerusalem, not the very birthplace or city that he would be born in was ready for his arrival. While the world slept that night that he was born in a stable, while the world was busy having a census and canning everyone and and, and running around like headless chooks, the saviour of the world was born in conditions that no one would want their own child to be born in because there wasn't even room in an inn for him to be born in. And despite the messages from God about the arrival of his son into the world, the world and, his, and its people were not ready to receive him and they missed the opportunity. Now, let's move forward some 30 years. Jesus is all grown up. Jesus has grown up under his parents. He probably worked in his father's uh, carpentry shop, probably helping his dad make uh, furniture and, and things of that nature. He submitted himself, the Bible says, to his parents and obeyed them perfectly in every possible way. 30 years later, Jesus is called by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. He spends 40 days there, which is the beginning of the transition into his ministry. He was now ready to tell the world about who he was. <coughs> Let me ask you a question. Was the world woken up from its slumber? Was it ready for him then? Did God do something else to remind people that this was about to take place? Did he help prepare them? Did he give them the message that when this child was grown into a man that he would come to be the saviour of the world? Yes, he did. The Bible says that he sent someone before him to prepare the way. Look at Isaiah chapter 40 with me. Isaiah chapter 40. It says there, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. That means gently. And cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Before Jesus would come on the scene, ready to to announce himself to the world that he was here, God, the Bible says, would send a messenger who was crying in the wilderness, and basically he was saying, get ready, God's coming. You know what he was saying? By make a straight way in the thing, he was saying, get yourselves ready. Roll out the red carpet. God's landing. God's coming here. You know, if a king came to your house, if a king came to your house to have, uh, to have uh, dinner or lunch, say a king or, or, or a very important dignitary was coming to your house or chose to have dinner or lunch at your house, what would you do? 
I know Mary Wood, first of all, had a heart attack. And then after we got her out of the hospital, she'd probably think about cleaning the house, scrubbing every wall down and doing all that sort of stuff. But wouldn't you prepare? Wouldn't you get your home ready and clean and fix up some whatever things you might have let go for a little while or make sure the front garden had some nice extra flowers in them and you make sure the inside was already you know already and perfect just for that occasion wouldn't you do that this is what john was saying he was saying get ready he's coming to visit us roll the red carpet out sound the trumpets make sure that everyone is ready and their hearts are ready their homes are ready because this is what's about to occur did they do it? Turn to John chapter 1, verse 19. God had promised to send this person to announce the way. And the Bible says, amazingly enough, that this, this person, John the Baptist, was living in the wilderness. He was eating locusts and honey. That's a guy who lives in the wilderness. And he's crying out to everyone, prepare you the way of the Lord. Look at, well, look at, look at how they, they respond. John chapter 1 verse 19 says, and this is the record of John. This is John's testimony now. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? Who are you? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. The first question they asked him, are you the Christ? No, nah, that's not me. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I'm not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. They said unto him, who art thou? <laughs> that we may give an answer to them that sent us. Who sent them to find out who this guy was? What sayest thou of thyself? Who do you say you are? And John simply says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. Who was John saying that he was? He was saying he was the forerunner, the preparer for the coming of this Messiah. He said that very clearly to them. They wanted to know who John was. Turn to Luke chapter 3, verse 15. So while John's saying to everyone, get ready, he's on his way. And the people that were listening to John were still trying to work out who he was. We're still trying to, we're not sure about, is this guy the Messiah? I mean, he preaches pretty strongly. He's, he's, he sounds like he's the, he might be the Messiah. He sounds like he might be the one. It says in Luke chapter 3, verse 15, And as the people were in expectation, and all men amused in their hearts of John, which means they were talking amongst each other, they were interested. Well, who is this guy? What's he doing here? What's he, what's he saying? Whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latcheth. Of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with holy, the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly or thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Not only did John say that he wasn't the Christ. He said that when the Christ came, he wasn't even worthy to unlatch his shoes. He wasn't worthy to do that. And that when he came, not only would he bring judgment with him, but that he, the Bible says that he would gather his wheat or the good grain into his barn and the rest will he burn. Now that is a very, very clear indication that he would rule and that he would judge the world and that he would judge with fire those people who resisted him or who rejected him. Notice it says, and this is where some of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters get these things mixed up, but to be baptised with the Holy Ghost and with fire are not the same thing. When you read that he will baptise you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, that's not at the same time. To be baptised with the Holy Ghost, we know means salvation. 
But to be baptised with fire, that means judgment. That means actually being condemned. So sometimes the, the, the Pentecostals or the Charismatics will say, oh, we're waiting for fire to come down on us from God, as if that's going to give them some sort of a, you know, Holy Spirit fire. You don't want that type of fire that God's going to rain down. That type of fire that God's going to rain down is the fire of condemnation and the fire of judgment. The two things are the Holy Ghost or fire. You're either saved or you're in hell. So John tells everyone, the guy who's coming, the person who's coming after me, who I'm preparing the way for, is so far ahead of me, is so much more holy than me, is so important that his advent in this world is the most important thing you would ever know. And I am not even worthy to unbuckle his shoe. That's how important he is. Was the world ready to receive him? Well, sadly, no. If you look at John 1, 1 that we read before, in verse 10 and 11, it says that he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not and they didn't receive him. Those two lines, of the, the, the final two lines of that passage that we read at the beginning are such a sad story that the world was not ready. The world was not ready for his birth. They didn't recognise it. They weren't ready for his arrival when he announced that he was starting his ministry. They were not excited about this arrival. They weren't aware about what God was about to do. They had turned a blind eye to all the promise that God had made, all the information that he'd given them, all the things that should have excited them they turned away from and they were so not ready for him that they chose to kill him. That is a very, very sad story. But did God know what would happen? Of course he did. He knew already beforehand that they would, even though he announced the coming, he told them everything they needed to know about who he would be, where he'd be born, what manner he would be born, what he would do, what he would, what he would say, how to identify him in every possible way. I was going to send you someone beforehand to make sure that you knew um, who he was and when he was here with John the Baptist. Go back to Isaiah chapter 53. Did God know what would happen that they would not be ready? Isaiah chapter 53. Look at how verse 1 starts. Who hath believed our report? Not many. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm of the Lord was Jesus Christ. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Did God not know what they would do? Of course he did. He was despised and rejected of men. And even in the end, his own disciples even abandoned him when he was taken prisoner and put on trial. He was acquainted with grief and with sorrow. And the Bible says that all the world, all the world, the people that he came to save turned their faces away from him. How blessed are we? How blessed that God did not choose to destroy the earth with fire. He could have. How blessed are we that he then allowed his son to be tormented, to be tortured, to be ridiculed and mocked to be spat upon and to be put on a to be hung on a tree 
to be whipped and then to allow him to die the most agonising death simply so we could have life. How blessed are we that he chose to save us rather than condemn us. Listen to Jesus' words as he, he was approaching Jerusalem one day. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. The world missed an opportunity. They were not ready for his birth as we... The world is celebrating. The world is celebrating his birth next week. The world. And they don't even realise what they're celebrating. They've turned it into something else. When he died for them on the cross, they still weren't ready. Even though he preached to them consistently for three years, they saw his lifestyle. There wasn't one thing that he did that was ever wrong. They still weren't ready. But the scary thing is, above all, not only were they not ready for his birth and for his, when he arrived, arrived as a king, there's another advent. There's not only one advent here. There's another advent. And the question will be, will they be ready for that? You see, the world has had two, another 2,000 years to prepare itself for his second coming. The church has had 2,000 years to spread this gospel. You see, the Jews were entrusted with the story to get the world excited about his first coming. The church has been given the responsibility to spread this excitement into the world about his second coming. Let me ask you a question. Is Bethlehem ready today? Is Jerusalem ready today? Is Israel ready today? For the second coming of this king. Is Australia ready today? Is any country in this world ready? God was as clear in the new is as clear as the New Testament as he was in the old. Look at Revelation chapter one, verse seven, as we start to as we wrap this thing up. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Will the world be ready when he comes again? Are we ready for the second advent? Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. He comes in the clouds. And every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, his own people. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Can it be any clearer than that? 